with Long Island local news on Wednesday, August 23rd, 2023. I'm Gianna Volpe on WLIWFM. The Suffolk County Water Authority yesterday said it has collected more than $2 million in past due water bills from customers who owed $1,000 or more by threatening to put liens on their property taxes. Mark Harrington reporting on Newsday.com that the program, begun in May, communicated with more than 2,800 customers who owed more than $1,000 for more than three months that they could avoid liens on their property by making payments before August 31st. About 1,240 customers have agreed to pay a total of about $2.4 million, reducing the arrears from a prior total of $5.1 million, according to Authority Chief Executive Jeff Zabo. Quote, we don't want to turn people off and we don't we do want to give them opportunities to enter payment plans, he said, noting the utility has communicated with customers via calls, emails and letters. In other news, the judge handling the package of lawsuits brought against East Hampton Town by opponents of flight limitations at East Hampton Airport in Wayne Scott has ordered the town to pay more than $177,000 to the plaintiffs in the lawsuits after being found in contempt of court earlier this year. Michael Wright reporting on 27East.com that the judge, Suffolk County Supreme Court Justice Paul Baisley, gave the town 30 days from his August 15th judgment to pay the awarded plaintiff's fees, which come on top of a $250,000 fine Baisley imposed in May when he found the town had violated a restraining order he'd imposed on airport operations last summer. The town of East Hampton has said it's appealing the contempt finding and would appeal the order to pay the fees as well. The judge only awarded the plaintiffs about 60% of the $295,000 in fees that their law firms had claimed had been expended on arguing just the contempt charges against the town. Justice Baisley had held the town in contempt of court because he ruled the town had imposed restrictions on pilots at East Hampton Airport last summer, even though a TRO issued on May 16, 2022, had ordered the town not to. And finally, the Riverhead IDA will hold another public information session This evening at Riverhead Town Hall at 5 p.m. with representatives of Calverton Aviation and Technology to discuss CAT's financial readiness to purchase 1,600 acres and develop at least 1 million square feet of mixed-use space on a portion of the uh, APCAL. The meeting can also be viewed on Riverhead Town's website. Beth Young in East End Beacon reporting that since the buyers of more than 1,600 acres of land at EPCAL first pitched the idea of building an air cargo distribution hub there in September of 2022, members of the public have come to town meetings in droves asking the town of Riverhead to cancel the sale. Last Thursday, the group EPCAL Watch told a group of more than 120 people who packed into the Vale Levitt Music Hall for an EPCAL update organized by the Heart of River Civic Association, that they are now collecting donations to a legal fund to fight the sale of the property, a former Grumman aircraft manufacturing plant that was given to Riverhead Town by the U.S. Navy in 1998 to be used for economic development. A representative from the International Brotherhood of Teamsters Local 804, which represents UPS drivers on Long Island, pledged his union support to EPCAL Watch and their challenge, while local civic leaders urged those in attendance to rally their neighbors and show up to hold candidates for town office accountable on their positions in this November's election. Reading the weather on the rock and order of Dr. Nicholas Carderis, joining me for the Wednesday Wisdom segment, underwritten by East End Food, uh, Longhouse Reserve, and LTV Studios to talk about Digital madness, how social media is driving our mental health crisis and how to restore our sanity, as well as an event we are both doing. We're going to do a talk about the book at the Shelter Island Library, 7 o'clock on Friday, the 25th, looking like a sunny Wednesday with a high near 76 degrees on Shelter Island, northeast wind, 6 to 8 miles per hour, becoming southeast in the afternoon. Tonight, mostly clear with a low around 60 degrees, south wind around 5 miles per hour, 
becoming calm in the evening. Right now it's 68 degrees. We have a couple more rising tracks, uh, Black Puma, CCR, uh, Black and Bad Moon Rising. I'm going to probably bunny hop past Captain Highside, Madness Rising from the Season by Season EP to play a great one, uh, the title track from Tribal Blood's 2021 EP, Madness, Elton John, on deck after that. I'm Gianna Volpe, and you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome, and you're listening to Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, the weekday morning and midnight show, The Heart, on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, uh, WLIWFM. Stay with us.
What I just said to our next guest, there's a bathroom on the right here at WLIWFM, a little CCR. It's a joke. It's Bad Moon rising from the Green River record of 1968, hopping past Captain Highside, Madness Rising, uh, as we switch our theme. Oh, gosh. I think we're going to wait to switch our our theme. We're going to do Tribal Blood in just a second. Sit down wherever you're comfortable, Dr. K. Now, is it Cardaris? Cardaris, very Cardaris. good. Cardaris, okay. Dr. Nicholas Cardaris, who we're doing an event together on Friday at Shelter Island Library. We're going to be talking about his book, Digital Madness, how social media is driving our mental health crisis and how to restore our sanity. Um, I, I'd love to start by talking about something I'm very fond of as a journalist, news literacy and how it can help in the war against disinformation, because we're let's be let's face it, we have uh, less luck getting rid of wrong information than we do teaching folks how to recognize the difference between what is true and what is not. Right. So my thoughts are there. There's always been mis disinformation. We've had the National Enquirer for decades. We've always had nonsense and UFOs and Bigfoot, but we've had the sort of critical thinking as our in our sheath. You know, so the challenge is we're not going to change the, the toxic ocean, but we need to become better swimmers to be able to navigate through the toxic information overload. So, And the sad thing is that critical thinking has not classically been something that's taught in schools. Exactly. Exactly. And that's part of the initiatives that I have is we need to go back to some of those basic core skills if we have critical thinking skills, the ability to discern things. Um, But there's other skills in there as well, too. We've lost, um, we've become an emotions economy, part of it amplified by social media that really triggers our lizard brain and creates emotional reactivity. And preys upon it. Preys upon it. You know, I mean, let's talk about Corey Johnson. That's something that, a real life case for something that has worried me on a national security front. Uh, Let's talk about who he is and, and how the way social media algorithms are set is particularly dangerous to and for minds susceptible to extremification. You're talking about Corey Johnson, the yes. case in Florida? Yes. Yeah, that was a case that I worked on as an expert witness. He was a teenage, a typical adolescent Palm Beach County kid who fell down the rabbit hole of toxic. He was politically inclined. And, and really, the thing is, is he was really pushed because the way that the social media algorithm right. works right. is that it naturally... It's a predatory heat-seeking missile that targets what your Achilles heel is. So in his case, he was politically inclined, but then once he started going down, once he ate one potato chip in a certain direction, the predictive algorithms just flooded him with more and more content. So now his world was essentially more and more of that toxic. So he became radicalized into radical Islam after having been a progressive liberal for most of his adolescence to the point that he committed these horrific... um, well, one murder and three attempted murders as a 16-year-old. And um, and his mother just thought he was up in his room on his computer. Awful. Um, so, and, and, you know, he's an extreme example of but of something that's happening in two lesser degrees every day, all the time, with millions of young kids. You know, uh, I want to talk about how social media, and this, is, this sort of uh, runs from the topic we were just t- touching on, how the, the algorithm works. How has social media and the way the algorithm works widened the political divide and fed into the proliferation of black and white thinking distortions right. and borderline behaviors? Right. So as a psychologist, I treat in, I have treatment programs in Austin and Hawaii. I treat a lot of borderline personality disorder, which is typified by black and white thinking. You know, you don't see the gray or the nuance. It's mm-hmm. a lack of nuanced thinking. And it's also very emotionally reactive types of uh, right. behavior. And if you look at the societal landscape, you, you could see that as a society, we've become black and white thinkers, highly emotionally reactive. And and I think, and I'm hypothesizing with some other colleagues, that this emotional and this black and white divide is being created by the DNA of social media, which thrives off of polarity, because the nuance doesn't drive engagement. And it's and it puts it puts videos into certain sects, into right. groups. So if, like you talked about potato chips, you eat one uh, potato chip over here, it's going to give you 
all of what's in that section. Right. If you're leaning in left or if you're leaning in right, it's going to give you more. The, the predictive algorithm will give you more of what you're seeking. From a psychiatric standpoint, if you're a young woman who has a body image issue, it's going to sniff that out and then bombard you with toxic body image issues, which is which is not healthy for you, which drives up suicidality, but which increases engagement because you can't look away. It's like a car wreck, right. right? You're not supposed to look at it, but you can't look away. And, and that's baked into the DNA of social media. Horrific stuff. All right, let's talk about why our brains are predisposed to tech addiction. So... On the one, when I wrote my first book, Glow Kids, you know, we had a look at sort of the mechanics of the digital world, and so it increases dopamine, it increases uh, adrenaline, so we like the little dopamine tickle, so it's 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 dopaminergic and adrenalergic in a way that can be habit-forming, right. so that's just the platforms itself, but then the actual content feeds into our emotional lizard brain. You know, back in the old media days of the Walter Cronkite days, there used to be an old news adage that if it bleeds, it leads. Right. Because we know that fear and some of our deeper, our lizard brain, our lizard brain drives our kind of um, what we put our attention to. And so early on, a lot of the big tech folks understood that if they can activate your lizard brain and increase your fear quotient, you're going to stay stay watching. So, so you have a habit-forming landscape with a lot of toxic content because that's how they increase engagement. Because that, that's what you mentioned. You mentioned that it's not just what, like, what you've liked in the past, but then they also amp it up as you're scrolling. Yeah, it's called an extremification loop because eventually you'll get bored of at a certain level of content. So they got to up the ante, right? So you could only watch so many. If I if I'm at the cats and they send me kitty videos, I and eventually I need six cats and twelve cats because right. I need more and more of it because I get desensitized at a certain level. So they have to increase the intensity to keep us watching. And you see that also in uh, the personality, like people on their on their journeys, you see that happening very naturally. Uh, yeah. it, it's really it's really fascinating stuff. Can we talk about idiocracy for a second? Have you seen this movie? <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Because this is, the, it's like a companion yeah. to digital madness. And <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Idiocracy, I was like, eh. But I think I have referenced that film more than any other uh, in the whatever decade or so. Probably probably two. I don't know how long it's been since it came out. Uh, but that movie very sadly, succinctly talks about where we seem to be moving yeah. as a society. It's the dumbing down of our society. It's sort of, you know, we're, more, we're navel watching and watching, you know, playing Candy Crush and watching inane videos because we've become an entertainment-seeking society. And uh, Neil Postman was an NYU professor back in the 80s who wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he talked about the new visual medium being the soma of our generation, right? that we were just going to be pleasure-seeking idiots uh, that we're just going to be staring at these inane. And look, when you look at some of the most popular influencers, I know one of the Instagram uh, uh, viral. It's just like a, a rock, or it's just it's just um, it's just dumped us down and decreased our attention span. Right. right. So now, shorts and videos have become short and short. And now, according to the latest research, our attention span is one second less than that of a goldfish. Wow. We went from eight. We went from <laughs> the goldfish is nine seconds, and we're eight seconds, and that's a byproduct of our. Of our instant uh, short burst. Toxic By the time media. we get to the other end of the tank, we'll for, we'll have forgotten that we've ever been there before. <laughs> exactly. Right. So let's talk about Pythagorean uh, philosophy mm -hmm. and how it can transform folks' lives, as per your doctoral dissertation. Yeah, I did some work that really looked at how transformative some of those precepts with Pythagoras was old school, holistic before he was vegetarian, but he really honored the idea of deep contemplative meditation as opposed to navel staring and self, you know, so it's really being reflective rather than self-absorbed. Um, but it's really meditating and pondering the big questions. You know, it's deep thinking versus shallow thinking, uh, but it's also certain um, practices that make us lean into our sort of a grit and resilience. He was very into having uh, practices that were about self-discipline, you know, physical mm -hmm. practices, and then community. And he was, um, he lived a very, uh, I don't want to say ascetic life, but it was there was a level of asceticness to it. But it was you, you lived a certain. It was he. It wasn't just right action, but it was right thinking, right action, right living. 
led to, he used the, uh, the metaphor of our bodies and our minds are like a leer and we had to be well-tuned. And if we were thinking toxic and we were eating toxic and we were engaged in toxic behavior, we were out of tune and we were you not going to be well. You are what you eat, my friends. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, uh, it was a happy accident that both of my guests this morning uh, are on a recovery road who have been through it as far as, as substances are concerned. Can you talk about how your recovery led to to this book, uh, to your ability to kind of break out of the matrix a bit? Yeah, you know, my my addiction through substances uh, almost 25 years ago now, my recovery from it almost 25 years ago now, um, it's the old Nietzsche thing, that doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. Right. You, you know, there is a certain rebirth that happens when you get clean and sober and you have a different perspective on life. So it does change things. And so I became tuned into, um, well, the importance of meaning and purpose in one's life, like I was adrift. And so in that vacuum and void of feeling, what's it all mean? You know, you look for love in all the wrong places. So sex, drugs, and rock and roll right. fill the void of an empty life. And I was living a very empty life 30 years ago. And then I realized as I discovered some of the ancient Greek philosophers and some of the other ways of thinking that this is what's nurturing my soul. And yes, 12 steps and all these other traditional things were necessary, but it was a, it was a crisis of emptiness. Right. Uh, and so societally, in our Kardashian world, we've become so empty and so superficial. And of course, we're going to be more vulnerable to addictive habits to fill our emptiness. But the real antidote is how can we have meaning and purpose that really is uh, intrinsic, uh, not looking for the right pair of shoes, but looking how can I help another human being? And so all these recovery precepts really apply to the societal kind of um, issues that, that, and it was about, I was about 10 years clean and sober working as a psychologist when I started seeing oh, there's a new flavor of addiction now. It's not yes. just substances, it's this digital candy that, that people are just gorging on, our I love affair was, with tech. I thought it was interesting because you talk about um, like the way that it degrades our brain so that the it, it does something to the frontal cortex as well that makes you uh, even further susceptible Right. To, to staying in it. Can you explain explain that? Yeah, that was the part that a lot of people found shocking. We didn't quite realize. We had research, a lot of fMRI research that showed how chronic substance abuse compromises the prefrontal cortex, which is what controls our executive thinking. And really, it's, it's the the seat of our impulse That's control. That's our breaks that tells us, our hey, breaks, maybe, we, maybe we shouldn't. It's consequential thinking. So it's right. uh, maybe I, I can punch my boss in the face or have indiscriminate sex with... But maybe I shouldn't. It's the if-then thinking. It's that part of our brain that's exactly our breaking mechanism. That part of the brain with chronic substance abuse begins to shrink and atrophy so that you become much more highly impulsive. So a drug addict is compromised to not be a drug addict because their impulsivity gets broken or their and breaking mechanism. And over time is, is... It's a double whammy. You know, the, the, you have the a broken, break, breaking. Yeah, you're broken. You're broken. Your breaks are becoming... You've broken Further your brakes. Broken, yeah. You've broken your brakes. And what was really fascinating was that there were about a dozen MRI studies that showed the same shrinkage of, it's called the DGM, the dense gray matter of the prefrontal cortex shrinks with screen time in the same way that it does with drug abuse. So a kid or an adult on screen time begins to compromise their prefrontal cortex. And now they're be now they're getting broken breaking systems and they're becoming much more highly impulsive. So And then when you when you when you couple that with the extremification element of the video loops or whatever, uh, I mean, it, it seems like a formula or for not great stuff. Well, we're, we've become, we've primed the society to be highly impulsive now. Mm -hmm. And even if you look at like popular media stuff, when you look at even an action movie from the 1970s, there was some dialogue. You think of a Stephen Queen movie, there would be some dialogue, then it would be a car chase halfway through the movie. Now, like a Marvel movie, it's, action from the first second because we don't have the attention span to wait for the for the action scene. We've become so impulsive and so... You can't even uh, wait for the story to peak. Yeah, it's got to uh, be... Uh, right. We can't read books anymore that are 300 pages because we don't have the patience for it anymore. We're too... We've been too overly stimulated to the point of chronic impulsivity and it's to our detriment. It's to our societal detriment. It was. It was a kind of a... I was interested also to see how uh, suggestible we've become to the point 
that folks are developing accents or even tics because they are ingesting media from personalities of people who have uh, those behaviors. You're talking about TikTok Tourette's where there were thousands of teenage American girls who were getting Tourette's-like symptoms. They weren't really getting Tourette's, but they were mimicking in classic monkey see, monkey do fashion. The influencers were not just influencing our values like the Kardashian superficiality. It's like, I want to be like so-and-so. performative psychiatric influencers, which are now legion. There's now some psychiatric influencers because let's face it, what's popular on social media, but over-the-top performative types of things. So there's um, borderline personality influencers and DID, dissociative identity influencers who have multiple personalities, right, right. whose followers are now mimicking some of their symptoms because that that's a precept of social learning theory. We learn by our peers. And now our and social And you demonstrated world... that very clearly when you talked about uh, the rise of mass shooters. Yeah. You know, you talked yeah. about how uh, f- the first one was 1966, yeah, something like UT that. Yeah, the UT Texas Tower shooting in 1966. And, I mean, and then there was a copycat, right, shortly after. That was it, right? Oh, and that good, was very, it. The but, then, but then, you know, you talk about uh, Columbine. and Columbine it, in 1999 was the first internet era school shooting. And that became the template that was spread via digital means. That became sort of the viral moment so every other school shooter after that has used really Klebold and Harris the Columbine shooters became sort of the the archetypes for for copycats after that you saw that in the same sort of behavior in the incel in incel movement um, and then you talk about uh, the very horrific fact that you know school shootings and and mass shootings I mean I don't even know where we are as of this year but uh, it's horrifically become a no I, you can't even say normalized but yeah. you almost have to because it's happened so many times over just this year well let's face it if you have and we've always historically had lost drifting empty young you know the young empty young male and now they have a blueprint now mm-hmm. they know that they can get their 15 minutes of notoriety they can be somebody because a lot of these young men feel empty and disempowered, and and they sometimes get a synthetic feeling of empowerment through video games because you know they'll level up to 113 and they'll become galactic whatever right. in the fantasy world. Or oh look at this! If I commit this next school shooting, I'm going to be on the news cycle. I'm going to be infamous. I'll live forever, and um, and it gives them a blueprint to copy which didn't really exist before. Right. Tough stuff. All right. If you're interested by the stuff we're talking about, uh, you can find out more on Friday. I believe it's SI, let's see, uh, Shelter Island Public Library.org to find out more about this Friday at seven o'clock. Dr. Nicholas Carderis and I will continue our discussion about his book, uh, Digital Madness. Hold on. I'm going to get the whole title in here. <laughs> Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Sanity. I'm Gianna Volpe. That was Dr. Nicholas Carderis. This was the Wednesday Wisdom segment underwritten by East End Food, Longhouse, uh, Reserve, and LTV Studios. Uh, This is Tribal Blood Madness, uh, the title track of their EP from 2021. And you, whoever you are out there, you are awesome. And you're listening to Long Island's only Local NPR radio station, WLIWFM, news you can trust, music you love. Everybody's acting. Like the world is ending And I hear people saying It's madness The bad guys keep on winning And the good guys keep on losing We're searching for the light in The darkness Seems to know who 
From tribal blood to Sir Elton John, you get a little bit of it all here on Long Island's only local NPR radio station, WLIWFM. Hi. 
Madness from Elton John's 1978 record, a single man, 88, 98, 2008, four decades later, pressing strings recorded this. This is the madness. We've got Who Are Those Guys? Highway Madness. Then a little Iron Maiden will lead you into the NPR news break with Can I Play With Madness? Uh, from the 1988 record, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. I'm Jenna Volpe, and you... Whoever you are out there, you're awesome. And you're listening to WLI WFM.
How about a little maiden, friends? Our very own Who Are Those Guys? Leading you into the NPR News Break with Iron Maiden. WLIWFM's Heart of the East End. Right. 